0: Okay, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. If you have your Bibles, our uh, scripture, scripture reading this morning will be Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one also who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we are thankful that as part of your work as the ascended lord that you have poured out your grace in the church that you have given gifts to each one of us and you have drawn us together into this body that we might use those gifts to edify and to build up one another god we have said as a church that we exist for your glory So that we might grow disciples in community. And we know that part of that process of growing disciples requires that we come together, that we encourage one another, that we speak the word of God to one another, and that we use the gifts that you have given us to build up one another. God, we pray that that would be a reality. We, we've made it a mission statement here, but we pray that it would be more than a statement. We, be, we pray that it would be more than a motto, that it would be really the heartbeat of this church. God, we want you to be glorified uh, by having more and more disciples and stronger and stronger disciples. We we pray that this would be a reality here at Union Baptist Church, and we know that it can be by your grace. And so we pray for We pray for that grace. We pray for it this morning. So often, Lord, we look at a goal and it's so far away and it's so long away and it seems like it's something that may not be accomplished, Lord, but we know that so many things happen step by step, day by day, week by week. And we pray that this week as we gather together, that that we might... Be walking in that direction. We we pray for your blessing and your help in this, God. I pray for Jared this morning as he comes to preach your word. I pray that you'd empower him by your Holy Spirit. I pray that conviction would come upon us, uh, that that where our lives are not matching up to your word, that that we would be convicted and we would l- be led to confess and to repent our, of our sins. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who who is not a disciple. Of Christ that who has not been saved has not put their faith in Jesus Christ I pray this morning that they would know that the gospel is for them that Jesus died so that whoever would turn from their sins and and repent and and turn in faith to him would be saved I pray that that reality would be brought home to them and that you would draw them into your kingdom God we ask all of these things in the name of Christ amen
1: ask you men to come as we take up the offering this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of being in thy house this morning as we worship a living Lord. We thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for everyone participates in the service this morning. I pray for Jared as he comes to preach for us today. And thank you for all those uh, in the Sunday school, all the teachers and those that keep the do everything that's done in this building to glorify you and father as we come together this morning we want to give back to you a portion of what you have given to us throughout this past week and we pray father upon these pray for those and uh to give of their tithes today and their offerings that uh, you might be glorified today lord and everything is said and done in thy house and continue to be with brother andrew a uh, pastor here at union baptist church we thank you for every person every member thank you lord for those who are here with us today those who are visiting with us we're so thankful they're with us to as we worship today thank you for all your blessings for we ask it in christ's name amen good morning it's good to see you all here today i'm glad you made
2: it out <laughs> If you have your Bibles, we'll start out in Matthew chapter 28, and that's uh, page 784 in the black uh, pew Bible, if you need it. At some point, we'll we'll head on over to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at some of the verses that, that Andrew read for us this morning. So, I'll give you a minute to find us there in Matthew chapter 28. It's a passage that we're all familiar with. It's the, the Great Commission passage. Uh, so it shouldn't be shouldn't be new ground for us to cover. You do have on the back of your bulletin there uh, some notes or a space to take some notes, a little fill in. That will be a little bit helpful for you, um, but I can tell you I've got way more than, than you've got room for to write. So uh, you just plug it, plug it in while we're going until you run out of space and, and uh, I'll keep going. The title of this message today is Discipleship Requires the Local Church. And I just wanted to put that out there and say that because that's, I'm not going to repeat that over and over. I'm just not that crafty with the way I write a sermon that I can't just keep plugging taglines into it. I've just I've run through the text. I try to bring out what's there. But I don't want you to miss that point. I put that title on there because I think it's important. And that's a takeaway that I want us to have this morning is that discipleship requires the local church. The big idea or the big picture that you'll notice on your bulletin is also something that I want you to take away, but again, not something that I'm going to repeat over and over, and it's written down so that you can remember it, but common Christians must make discipleship common practice, and those are kind of a couple of takeaways from this sermon that I want to just set out there now. I want to front end that for you so that you already understand kind of what I'm preaching you toward as we get to the conclusion of this, uh, of this message this morning. So let me read the text here in Matthew and pray and and we'll get started. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Fathers, we gather this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. God, to be in a church that loves you, a church that is striving after you, though imperfectly. I'm even thankful, God, for the opportunity to preach this morning. I love to open your word. I love teaching and preaching and declaring your truth. But God, I am so painfully aware of my weakness God, completely and totally dependent upon the grace of your Holy Spirit to be with me today. And so I'm praying that the Spirit of Christ as promised in, in Matthew's gospel where Jesus himself and other places said that when even just two or three saints gather together as a church in, in the name of Christ that he is present. And I am aware that, that I am weak and incapable of this task, that I can speak until the cows come home, but that doesn't mean that I've preached, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be effective. And so God, for it to be preaching, Christ-centered biblical preaching, for it to be effective in, in bringing us to an end today that glorifies you and moving men and women's hearts and, and boys' and girls' hearts this morning toward discipleship, God, that's, that's on you. I can't do that, and, and I couldn't in a hundred lifetimes. And so in my weakness and desperation this morning, I pray for help. God, I pray that you would do the work that I can't do. I will do the speaking. I will uh, declare your word as clearly as I can, but God, you must bring life. You must change hearts. You must motivate wills. God, you must glorify Christ. And I pray that you would be with me and help me in that end, God, to that end and in that task. I praise you and thank you and bless you, and I want to be a blessing to these people. I want to to feed your sheep well, so God, help me to do that, and I pray that you would help them to listen well, that there would be no miscommunication between what I intend and what they understand, God. I pray that you would bless it on both sides, and we ask these things for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. It may be strange for you what I'm about to say, but we, we know this text, we've heard this text, we've grown up with this text, but this text that I just read is not, in, not instructing us to go and make as many converts as we can. I'm going to let that sit there for just a second. I'll say it again. This text is not instructing us to go and make as many converts as we can. You're probably wondering, well, what are you getting at here? Well, I think sadly that's the interpretation that this text gets in many churches, But I want you to consider the context of these verses. I want you to consider that Jesus delivers these words to his disciples just recently having been crucified. Laid in the tomb, dead for three days, then raised from death. He walks around for some 40 days, spends time with his disciples. And now, after this glorious resurrection and just prior to his glorious ascension into heaven... He gives them, as the newly inaugurated king of heaven and earth, this command to go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that He's commanded. So it's not merely a commandment to go and make converts. That's selling it too far short. It's a commandment to make disciples, and they're not necessary, they ought to be synonymous, but in the way that the world functions, And in the way that churches function, they're not synonymous in practice. And so don't hear me say that we've done our job when we've gone out and won souls. That's the starting point. That's when the gun is fired and the racers come up off the blocks and and begin the sprint. And we clap our hands and say, woo-hoo, the race is over. And that's foolishness. The race begins at conversion. It's not completed until we get to the end. And really, this is not a sprinting race anyway. Think about a marathon. This is a long-term thing. So the, the goal here, the, the, the command here is not to go make converts alone. It's to make disciples. And that is a process that goes much beyond and much deeper than winning souls. It is that, but it's more than that. And that's, I want to make that clear. But my first point and the first thing that you're going to see there in your bulletin so you can start filling in some blanks is that making disciples is a matter of submission to Christ's authority. Making disciples is a matter of submission to Christ's authority. And we get that straight out of verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now there are doubtless many good conclusions that could be drawn from Jesus' statement here regarding his authority. We could preach this in in different directions and be faithful to the text. But that I, I want to point out that one thing that we must be certain not to miss is that he commands us to make disciples as an exercise of his authority on heaven and on earth, in heaven and on earth. It's a command to make disciples, but that, that comes from his authority. We're talking about the highest authority in heaven and on earth. This is not just a suggestion. It's, just, it's not just a, a, a nice thing that we ought to do. It's not just a commandment given from, from some small, weak, not very known, not very powerful individual. We're talking about King Jesus, who has just in days before this been raised from the dead in splendor and glory. Moments from this, he's going to ascend into heaven Surrounded by the heavenly hosts and and be uh, welcomed to God's right hand. This is no small thing. Let's not miss the authority that he has. He has the right to command you and he has the right to command me. And we ought, because of his power and his position, to willfully submit to that. Joyfully submit to that. But making disciples is first and foremost a matter of submission to Christ's authority. It's a good thing. It's something that churches ought to be about to prolong their days and make sure that they're around. But let's not miss that this is basic Christianity. This is the expectation. This is the starting point for us in our obedience to Christ is going to make disciples. We cannot divorce Jesus' role as Savior from his authority as king. He won't let us, not even in this passage. He intends to be glorified as Savior, yes, because that's part of the work that we're going to do. They have to be saved to become disciples, but he will be also Lord in their lives because they're not merely converts. They are disciples of King Jesus. He's the only one within the kingdom that we could make disciples of. Uh, Disciples of Jared Gaynor, that's a fruitless endeavor, pointless, purposeless. We're not here to make disciples of you or disciples of Union Baptist Church. We're here to make disciples of King Jesus because he's the only one of exemplar character that we could point people to and say, be like him. He is the model person. He is the second Adam. He is true manhood. He is faithful Israel. He is the one who we ought to be like. And and so we point people to him, but he will be more than just savior. He will be Lord as well. I don't buy the dichotomy that you can accept Jesus as your savior and never submit to him as your king. I think you're, you're lost if that's your position. If, you, if you're actually living that way, maybe I'll, give you, I'll grant you that you can be theologically, theologically confused over that. But if your life is one where it's not under submission to Christ, you've just, you're just using Jesus for a ticket to heaven, you don't have Jesus. He's not a ticket punched for heaven. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is king. Merely making converts is not what Jesus commanded us to do. He must be glorified through lives gladly submitted in their entirety to his sovereign rule. So what does this mean? It means that failure to pursue discipleship you, just, you pursuing it like Andrew preached about last week, where you submit to God's word. You're pursuing God through prayer. You're reading God's word. You're teaching your children. You've got this personal connection to Christ that you're nurturing and growing and all that. That's part of it. So if you're not pursuing that, you're failing to, to, to be under obedience to Jesus' command. But today we're looking at the aspect of it's not simply that. It requires that all of us as a, as a body, as an organization, as a group, as, as uh, members of Christ's body, we ought to be about this process collectively as well. If we're not pursuing it personally, we're not going to be pursuing it collectively. But it's both. It's not either or. You can't say, well, I've got my personal devotions. I don't need to be plugged in with the local church and what it's doing. That's not there. That, there's no room for that in this. And you can't say, I don't really need personal devotions because I show up on Sundays and Wednesdays and, and I'm getting it all at church. That's not good or true either. We, it's a, it, we, we must be pursuing discipleship, our own and the discipleship of others. Because if we don't, it's direct disobedience and outright rebellion against King Jesus who has commanded us to go and make disciples. Failure to obey Jesus' command to be discipled and to be discipling others is sinful. It robs Jesus of the glory that he deserves. So we need to know that. We need to see what's at stake at the beginning of this. It's not just a good thing to do. It's not a suggestion. If you refuse to participate in your personal discipleship and corporate discipleship, you're rebelling against King Jesus who has authority in heaven and on earth, and that's a big deal. That ought to be a gut punch for some people. We, we, we need to feel the weight of that because he, that's, where he, that's where he takes us. Hey, guys, I'm sending you out because I rule heaven and earth hey guys, you've got purpose because I'm empowered and I'm now empowering you to go do something. So when we sit back and say, I don't need to do that or I'm not going to do that or I'm going to redefine what that looks like for me, you're saying, Jesus, I'm willing to, to snatch power from you and glory from you and I'll rewrite things according to the gospel of me. That's absolutely rebellious. That is absolutely sinful and we must see that and we must see it for what it is. Because too often, that's that's where I want to live and that's where you want to live. So let me state it another way. Jesus is worthy of your whole life, not just part of it. Submitting to discipleship makes your life a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And discipleship brings God glory. That's what we ought to be living for. That's what our goal as Christians ought to be in part, is living lives for the glory of God. And discipleship is one way that we do that and one way that it's done well. So number two, <clears throat> making disciples does not require sameness. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm using it. That's why it's in those quotes there in your, in your bulletin. I, it may not even work as a word, but I'm going to use it. Making disciples does not require sameness. So those whom we disciple may be very unlike us, and that's a good thing. You'll notice in verse 19, we're sent to disciple the nations. Well, they're nations because they're not a part of our group. Like they're they're distinct and separate from us. They're not Americans. They're maybe not even Westerners. Uh, And we could break this down and we could look at this within subcultures within America. We've got a lot of those here too. So it could be that we stay right here on our own shore within our own country. And we're thinking about the Burmese population in Owensboro or a Hispanic population. or we're thinking about, you know, we live in another city somewhere and there's a Korean population or whatever. We're to go and we're to disciple those kinds of people too. It's not just middle-class white Americans. We're after everybody because Jesus is after Everybody. So we're not looking for sameness. We don't want our church to just be filled with a bunch of folks that look like each other. That's going to be hard to do in Hancock County, I'll grant you that. But we ought to have at least a willingness and a heart that, that would welcome a, a diversity of, of ethnicity, a diversity of social and economic status within this church sitting in these pews uh, because that's what God's interested in. He didn't say just go to the Jews and, and, and you know, Proselytize all these unbelieving Jews because believe me, there were many of them in that day. But he sends them to the nations and he sends us by extension to the nations. Psalm 96 verses 1 through 4 says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord Hancock County? No, it says all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. Why? Verse four sums it up. For God, sorry, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. All the earth here is commanded to sing praises to Yahweh. Not just you and not just me in in our middle class setting here in Hancock County. God desires the praise and deserves the praise of all people everywhere. And he sends us out with the privilege of calling them into that duty, that sacred duty. And we ought to be about it. And here's the reason why. Because the Lord is great. And therefore the worship of him needs to be great. And it's not as great as it could be when it's just you and me huddled together in a little old country church and we don't care about everybody else worshiping Jesus or not. The greatness of of God is linked to the, the scope of the gospel. Because Psalm 96 says he is great, it requires then that all peoples everywhere worship and praise him because that's what's fitting to a great king. It's not just a few folks huddled over in a corner somewhere keeping it quiet on the down low. It's everybody everywhere, and that's the message. We take the free offer of the gospel to everybody, and the reason we do that is because the Lord is great. He's not seen as as great as he ought to be just by this fellowship right here. We ought to greatly praise him. We ought to be exuberant. We ought to be excited. We ought to worship him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and be moved to do that. But that's what we do here, and out of the overflow of the joy we have of worshiping a great king, we invite others from everywhere else we go in life to worship King Jesus with us, because his name is great, and it ought to be greatly worshiped, not minimally worshiped. So I'm speaking a little bit to the practice of worship with with the way that we do things here. Let's, Let's just be free to worship Jesus because he's great and he ought to be greatly praised, not minimally, quietly praised. And that's also talking in scope of lots of people ought to be doing it. So let's go find those folks and let's ask them to come worship Jesus with us because that's what we're about, and that's what we ought to be doing. Nothing brings this into clearer focus than when people from every tribe and language and people and nation gather around the throne of Jesus Christ to worship Him as King, and that's where history's going if you've read Revelation. Revelation 5-9, Jesus has this great worship. And he has it for eternity because he is gathering people through the extension of this command here in Matthew chapter 28. He's calling and drawing people to himself from all kinds of backgrounds. He doesn't want it to be bland and and tasteless and, and one flavor. He wants it to be varied with all the kinds of variety that the earth has because that's what's befitting to a great king. That everybody from everywhere find in him the salvation that he offers. And find in him the satisfaction that he gives people. That's what makes his name great. That's one of the motivations. And that's why we're not after sameness with the Great Commission. That's why discipleship is not about making disciples of me. It's making disciples of him. And he's good enough and broad enough and great enough and expansive enough that he communicates with people all around the globe. He doesn't have to be like me. Uh, People don't have to be like me to worship and praise Jesus. He is awesome, and we need to make his awesomeness known. So the third point that I want us to see here out of Matthew is that making disciples must not be separated from missions, evangelism, or life in a local church. Making disciples must not be separated from missions, evangelism, or life in a local church. We see that again in verses 19 and 20. Notice verse 19, the the disciples and by extension us are sent to the nations... And this is typically where we get this missions idea. We think about being missionaries and going to another country and taking the gospel to another people group. And that's important because that's part of what's going on here. He doesn't say stay here and do it all. He says go other places and take the gospel. So it can't be divorced from missions. But it's more than just that it's not that alone add keep that and add to that evangelism because he wants to save people in hancock county he saved us he wants to save some more and so there's this what we would call evangelism piece of it it's those words aren't in the text but the implications of them are go far reaching all to the ends of the earth and and make disciples win people through missions think locally also don't forget that evangelize evangelize your family members evangelize your co-workers evangelize people in the marketplace evangelize wherever you're at it's just like missions it's just domestic it's the same point make much of Jesus he's great and he ought to be greatly praised and let's help people do that let's call them to that let's let them know that's their purpose in life and that they'll flourish when they worship God let's draw them and call them into those things And then it also cannot be divorced from the local church because it's the disciples of God, the disciples of Christ, the the members of His body that He's sending to do this in an orderly way. So, let's look again at verse 19. The disciples, it says there, um, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that's a key word, keep that in your mind, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The disciples are supposed to be baptized. So what Jesus is saying here is that conversion through missions or in some cases evangelism should be followed by baptism, okay? This marks the first public act of submission and obedience to King Jesus by the newly converted disciple. Well, where does baptism take place, church? And I don't just mean up here in this baptistry, but within the context of the local church, He didn't ask the government to go baptize people. He didn't ask school systems to baptize people. He didn't ask as individuals to just go grab a pond somewhere on the back of a farm and baptize people, although there there might be a time and place for that. It draws us into local church life because that's the way we see it practiced from this point forward in our New Testament it's not just some john wayne out there on his own doing it all by himself it's within the context of a local body and that's the front door into the church that's the front door into membership and in a lot of cases was i was a pagan i've been saved and i joined a church and i the first time i become a member really is when i i'm baptized in as a believer in jesus christ now we've got this new thing and it's not that it's wrong, but people move. And they move more now than they ever did. And so we move letters from one church to the next. Well, that's not really the main way that we think about membership and joining local churches. The, the biblical way is that people become converted and they're baptized into the church. So we can't divorce the missions. We can't divorce the, the, the command to make disciples from the local church body. That, that means that you're connected to this process whether you signed on for it or not. It's not just my duty as one of the pastors of this church or Andrew's duty to be the people that are a part of this discipleship process. It requires the rest of of the body. So like I said, baptism is the front door into church membership, and it's the first descriptor that Jesus gives when he explains what disciples are supposed to do. What does discipleship entail? Joining a local church is one of the first things. Because we baptize people in as members of the church and we see that custom in the scriptures. We didn't just make it up as Baptists, it's part of the New Testament. And so there's no coincidence here. What does discipleship look like? It looks like joining a local church, being fostered in your relationship with Christ through local churches. (coughs) Excuse me. So once disciples are baptized or brought into the local church, that church has responsibility then. And listen up, Union Baptist Church, because this is about us as well. That church has responsibility to teach the disciple what it means and what it looks like to observe all that Christ has commanded. Discipleship, then, is common Christianity. Don't miss what was just said there, though. Looking again at verses 19 and 20, "...go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." The, the next part after baptism, what does discipleship look like? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So it starts with obedience to baptism, joining a local church community. It also looks like, from one perspective, submitting to teaching, being taught, learning things that you didn't know before, being humble, taking on new information. And on the other side of that, from the local church perspective, it looks like you and me teaching people what it what it looks like and what it means to be a disciple it's not just knowledge and we're going to look at that next it's not just knowledge it's a process it's 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 activity so maybe you're wondering how long should this process typically last how long does discipleship last and this didn't make it to your bulletin here but the it's a lifelong process making disciples is a lifelong process. And we we see that implied in verse 20. It doesn't state it, but I think if we understand what, what we're looking at there in verse 20, we'll come to this conclusion. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Okay? When would you be comfortable looking Jesus in the face and saying, Lord, I have learned to successfully observe all that you've commanded of me. Is anybody here ready to do that? Can anybody today say, I'll stand before God, look him in the face right now today and say, I have have learned to observe everything I've been commanded to do. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't suggest it either because I think it would be foolish. And so if that's the terms of discipleship, to, to teach people to do all that God through Christ has commanded us to do, then it's a lifelong process because we're never there on this side of glory. You're not there and I'm not there. And if we're just going to be honest about it, discipleship, I need it just as much as you do. And you need it just as much as the new convert does. Because the point here is, is that we're not, it's, we're not static. We don't just get converted and life's hunky-dory and we never have struggles and we never fall into sin. We just talked about some of that in, in Sunday school and, and Paul struggled with his sinful nature even as a believer. So because we still struggle with sin, we still need to be discipled. You're not perfect and I'm not perfect and we won't be till Jesus takes us to glory and our sin nature is pulled out of us and we have no longer the ability to sin. And so we're discipling people but we're also being discipled in in, in the process and that's the way it ought to work. And that's never going to be perfect in this life. It's never going to be complete. We're not done with it until we're dead. And so discipleship is a lifelong process. Looking at verse 20, what is the goal of teaching and discipleship? It says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, that sticks out to me. I think we read that often, teach them to know all that I've commanded you. And we we think it's okay if if we simply have Bible knowledge well i've learned more i've got head knowledge about god i've got head knowledge about my bible i can quote my bible you know i can i can name all the books of the bible i know how many there are and i know some basic christian facts and all that but that's not what discipleship is nor the goal of it it's not less than that but it's more than that because he didn't say teach them to know all that i've commanded you he said teach them to observe all that i've commanded you so jesus is aiming at your heart not your head he's not interested so much in your knowledge about him He's interested in your, your desire for him and your submission to him. Remember, this is risen Jesus, the guy who was dead a few days before this. He's now alive again, and he says, the, the whole reason I'm telling you to do this is because I have ultimate authority. And we want to we stop with, well, let's just learn a few facts about Jesus, and that's okay, that's enough for the king. I'm sorry, it's not. He's worthy of more than that. And we ought to be giving him more than that. He's, he's, he's aiming for our hearts, not our heads. He wants those too, but if he has our hearts, he has our heads. You understand that? He could have, Something can have our heads and not our hearts. And so he aims for the part that's most valuable, the most needed thing. And he, he wants our heart, because if he has that, he has the whole person. And so he doesn't say teach them to know all that I've, I've commanded. He says teach them to practice it in essence. Teach them to do everything I require them to do. And that's an entirely different ballgame. That's an entirely different thing. It's persistent practice that he has in mind here. Continuously encourage one another to persistently practice the things that you ought to be doing. And that's what all the New Testament preaches to us. That's That fits right in line with all the one another encouragements that we're constantly in one another's lives and and, and we're spurring one another on. Why? Because that's discipleship. Because we ought to be persistently practicing, not just simply learning with our minds, but loving with our heart and our affection and walking out with our will the things that Jesus wants us to do. Discipleship is teaching through word and deed how to observe all that Jesus commanded. Jesus' brother James would put it to us this way, because he did. He said, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Well, I love that last part, and I want you to hear it. We, we tend to I always hear the first part quoted. No, don't just be hearers of the word, but doers. But did you recognize that James says if you're listening and not doing, you're deceiving yourself? That's the warning that we ought, to be, we, ought, we ought to hear that. That ought to ring and resonate in our hearts. He wants more than your head. He wants your heart. And James says the same thing. Don't be self-deceived if you just listen to the sermon. That's not good enough. You ought to practice the sermon. Put your Christianity into practice. Live it daily. That's what King Jesus is worthy of. That's what King Jesus requires. That's what King Jesus commands. And we're not being discipled or discipling others uh, well at all. If we don't make that distinction and see that it's deeper than the head, it's it's sunk all the way down into the heart level. And he wants us doing, not listening. He wants more than just listening. So, can you call yourself a disciple if you're not doing the things Jesus commanded? Excuse me, I'm sorry. Be careful how you answer that question. Every disciple of Jesus is a Christian, and every Christian is a disciple of Jesus. So, where does that leave you if you're not doing what Jesus commands? Well, it leaves you in one of two places. You're either a Christian who is in active disobedience to King Jesus' commandments. Or you're not a Christian at all. Neither one of those are flattering places to, to land this morning. So as you hear me, I'm not, this is not a bludgeon. I'm not coming at you with anger. I'm talking to my own heart here. Believe me, I'm preaching to myself. But we need to recognize that the option of hearing Jesus and not obeying Jesus isn't on the table. At, at best, you're disobedient. And you're robbing Jesus of glory. And you're in active rebellion against the sovereign of the universe. That's kind of not where we're aimed for. That's that's not what we're about. At worst, you're not even a believer. You're just religious. And if you're in either one of those positions, it's the same remedy. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Own your sin. Not be proud of it, but recognize it. Confess it. Confess it. You must repent and stop robbing Christ of of the glory that He deserves. So, perhaps you're hearing this and you agree that discipleship is important. And you can see that Jesus commanded it, but you're still not seeing the connection to every Christian to be making disciples. We'll turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 then. Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to, I'll start with verse 7, although I'm really going to deal mostly with 11 through 16. I want you to notice here, uh, just kind of follow along, I'll come back through some of this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led uh, led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I want to skip down to verse 11. we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, I want you to notice verse 7. Go back to that real quick. But but grace was given to each one of us. And then in verse 12, he says that, that the... Uh, the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and all that, the evangelists were given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And then notice that in, in verse uh, 16, he uses the phrase, every joint, and then each part. So can you? I want you to recognize there that I'm not making it up when I say he didn't call pastors to do this by themselves. Or Sunday school teachers, for that matter. It's very plain and clear to anybody who, who's listening to the Lord this morning and, and, and interested in what He's saying plainly through the Apostle Paul, He says, each of you, and He started this letter to the saints at, of, in the churches of Ephesus. It's no different now. It didn't change because they were first century Christians and we're 21st century Christians and oh my goodness, the, the rules have changed. No, the, the call is still to each one of you out there who is, a, is a, a believer in Jesus Christ this morning. Each of you were given a grace gift. You're saints if you're in Christ this morning and you're supposed to be doing ministry work. It's you who, who are one of the every joints and it's you who are one of those each parts. And so Paul is very clearly calling you into discipleship this morning. It's not just my job and it's not just Andrew's job. It's your, it's your job as well. Notice what God says we're to do through Paul. He says that we're to equip you all to do it. That doesn't mean that we don't do it alongside of you, understand that. We wouldn't ask you to do what we're not willing to do ourselves. But there is a requirement from King Jesus that you all be a part of the process. So point number five in your bulletin, every member of the local church has received a grace gift for the purpose of discipleship. Every member of the local church has received a grace gift for the purpose of discipleship. So I want you to participate with me on this one. Does everybody understand what participation is? It means I'm going to read you a question and I want you to vocally loud enough that everybody else can hear you give the answer. I've got three of those. It's super simple, I promise. According to verse 7, how many Christians have received a grace gift? I'll give you another try. According to verse 7, how many Christians have received a grace gift? All of them. them. According to verse 12, how many saints have been equipped for the work of the ministry? All of them. According to verse 16, you see the theme here, you can bet on the last answer, it's a sure win. Uh, according to verse 16, how many of the body's joints and parts are needed for healthy body growth? All of them. And I wanted you to say it because I need you to participate. I mean, not just for my own sake, but sometimes it's just helpful to make yourself say things that are true. And I just, I just tricked each one of you all into admitting that you're a part of the process, but you already knew that. But it's helpful sometimes to just say it out loud. By saying all of them, you recognize that you're one of them that you just said is supposed to be a joint supplying a healthy body, a saint doing work of ministry, someone who's been equipped with a grace gift this morning, and and God intends and desires and requires that you use them So if you're a Christian, God has given you a grace gift to be exercised for Christ's glory. If you're a saint, God requires you to minister to other members of this body. If you're a part of this body, God has placed you here with the task of contributing to the spiritual health and maturity of this church as long as you're here. You've been saved to actively participate in discipleship for the glory of King Jesus. You're called both to be a disciple and to disciple others for the remainder of your life on earth. We don't graduate or retire from discipleship. And maybe we've been kind of tricked into that by our Western culture. If you're interested in reading, I recommend Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. He kind of deals with some of that. But just in, in summary, you don't get old enough to stop being a disciple. You don't get old enough to retire from ministry work as a, as a, a Christian. You, your option out is death or the return of Christ, and that's it. We work until the till the work is done, and it's not over till Jesus returns. And so we don't retire and we don't graduate from discipleship. We're never holy enough that we don't need to be disciples. We're never smart enough or we're good enough or consistent enough that we don't need the constant encouragement from other brothers and sisters to spur us on. And it's, I'm not saying that we're constantly going to learn things we've never known before. But we are going to constantly need to be called back into faithful walk with the Lord because we will stray from time to time. So how will we know if we're effectively being discipled or effectively discipling others? Well, that's number six here. God has set goals for our discipleship. And we see that in verses 13 through 16. Paul points out seven benchmarks uh, or milestones that we're going to pass on our our, uh, discipleship journey. So here they are, and I won't spend a lot of time on each of them, but if you can pencil them in in the margins, do that. If not, I just we didn't have enough place to, to put it all down. But unity in our faith and knowledge of Christ in verse 13, that's one of the benchmarks. How do we know we're properly moving forward as a personal disciple or discipling others to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, it's because we begin to have unity in our faith and in our knowledge of Christ. We're not free to hold private notions about the faith, it's once delivered for the saints you have your personal faith with god yes but when we're talking about the faith we're talking about that body of new testament teaching that that tells us who god is and what he requires we don't get to make that stuff up we don't get to have our own personal opinions that that don't really have anything to do with the bible about that we don't get to hold our own private interpretations of who god is or what god is And I'm dealing with that a little bit with a a group of people that are going through a program. And one of the points in that program for recovery is you just follow after whatever conception of God you have. Well, that's that's not New Testament teaching. That doesn't work for us. We submit to God as He's revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture, and we believe what He says about Himself, and we don't make up myths and stories that suit our fancy. So that's part of what we're talking about here, what Paul's saying. How do we know that we're being discipled well, and what are we trying to do when we disciple others? We're not making stuff up. We're pointing them to that body of knowledge that's been handed down for centuries and we're unified around those truths and not around our p- opinions about things so that the faith is unifying. We're, 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 we are agreeing with the same truths and thinking the same things about God. As we learn to submit our thoughts to Scripture, we begin to see God in the same way other faithful disciples throughout history have seen Him. So we have a shared language from a shared experience. Well, the next stop along the path is also in verse 13, and it's maturity. Uh, Effective discipleship results when we abandon childish thinking, childish ways of feeling, childish ways of acting uh, in, in order to be mature. Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child and acted like a child. I spoke like a child, but when I became a man, I put all that stuff aside. Well, that's part of discipleship too. That's part of what we're supposed to do. The process of discipleship makes us complete, lacking nothing. That's this maturity, this goal, this end, this perfection uh, some translations have making us perfect. That's not sinlessly perfect, it's completed. We have what we need. Well then verse 13 also tells us another boundary marker, another milestone along the journey is Christ-likeness. Paul has in mind here that we have been so thoroughly trained by the Word of God that we begin to resemble Christ. His graces are on display in our lives and His wisdom is on our tongues when we counsel other people. By becoming mature in Christ, our judgments reflect those of God. We resist temptations more. We're we're strong in our faith and we're faithful in our love because that's how Jesus is. And if we're Christ-like, then that's how we're going to be. And that's that's one of the stops along the path of discipleship. So what else is on the path? How else do we see where we're going? Well, biblical and doctrinal faithfulness is a summary of verse fourteen. We'll understand and appreciate doctrine, and I, I wanted to say it just like that. Most of us, and I've heard, I've heard people tell me we need to throw doctrine out the window. Well, no, we don't. We need to love and cherish doctrine because doctrine just means teaching, and I know that that's a contentious word to our very sensitive modern ears. But we need doctrine. We need it because, let's just face it, we don't know the truth unless God declares it to us, and doctrine is that body of truth. We have to have it, it must be declared, and we ought to love it because it's what keeps us on the path that pleases God. It's what brings Christ glory. It's how we mature in the faith. And so we need to understand doctrine and not, well, you know, doctrine, pff, yeah, I know what we believe, but golly, it just, it's dry and it's dull and it doesn't do anything for me. It needs to inflame our hearts with with adoration and love. We need to get past that childish way of thinking about doctrine, it's the rules. No, we need to love and cherish what it points us to and what it tells us about God and we need to understand it and faithfully live it out. This doesn't prohibit, however, being doctrinally faithful. It doesn't prohibit changing biblical views. It it prohibits exchanging biblical views for non-biblical views. There's a difference. Okay, so let me ask you this question. When was the last time you changed your views on anything? Think about it. Especially when it comes to the church and the Word of God. When's the last time God's Word convinced you you were wrong of anything? Because if you're not being convinced you're wrong, you're not discipling well. If you're not letting the Word of God... I'm not asking you to exchange the truth for a lie. I'm asking you to change in your conception that's not fully biblical for a more biblical conception. And if we're not doing that, we're not being discipled. And if we won't do that, we can't disciple others because we're trying to lead them someplace we've never been before. So if we're never changing, if you're not being, if you're not being pricked when the preaching's taken place, if you're not, if your conscience isn't being uh, abused from time to time, if you don't feel guilty after a sermon or after a community group lesson or Sunday school, if you're never saying, you know what, I was wrong about that, then you have to question whether or not you're even trying to submit to discipleship because Jesus is right about everything. I'm not and you're not and discipleship is the process that he created because we're not and we need to be made more and more like him but if we're never changing if we're never finding out that that's not the right way to think about that then we are not being discipled so when was the last time you changed your mind about anything political biblical parental the relational, it doesn't matter. Jesus speaks to it all. And if we're not willing to give up what we've always done for something better, we're not willing to submit to discipleship. And that's a scary place to be in. So one more time, when was the last time that you changed your mind on anything? I would suggest to you that if you're not being changed, then you're not listening well. So another pit stop along the way, or not pit stop, but road marker. Outspoken communicators of truth. That's what we become in verse 15. We become outspoken communicators of truth. We're outspoken because it doesn't just say sometimes if you're given the opportunity and somebody asks you tell them the truth in love, it says it's a command in the Greek. It's an imperative. You must be speaking the truth. And you do that in love. It qualifies it so that we're not just the soapbox guy out there banging the drum of God hates this and God hates that. No, we're, we're telling people what God wants and needs and requires in love for people. But it's a requirement. It's one of the, pit, it's one of the road markers along the way. We must proclaim truth. And that applies even to my fellow introverts. My natural stance in a room full of people is up against the wall somewhere or over in a corner. I am not a social butterfly. I don't do well in, in groups of people. I don't. I'm a one-on-one person. And maybe that seems crazy because I'm standing up here, but I'm up here by the grace of God and the grace of God only because this is not my natural, this is not my natural habitat. But I'm here because I've been called by my, my king to be here. And this is what He's told me to do. And, and I don't, it doesn't matter if you're introverted. Jesus doesn't say this is a commandment for the extroverts. He says it's a commandment to the church. Introverts, extroverts, it doesn't matter. We must proclaim the truth. If we have effectively been discipled, then we will become the one who disciples others. And that requires speaking truth. Another one, verse 15, growing in, into Christ. This means we exchange worldliness for godliness. We resemble Jesus more completely in every arena of life, in our parenting, our politics, our work, our leisure, our finances, our prayer, our study, fill in the blank. We grow to resemble Jesus in every aspect of our lives. Another point, the last point that we're going to look at here, and then we get into our closing. Serving to facilitate spiritual growth in the local church comes out of verse 16. Okay, That verse tells us... uh, that the whole, the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part works properly, it makes itself grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the goal. That's what we ought to be doing and that's what we ought to be achieving. This is not reserved for seasoned saints only. He doesn't say wait till you've got 40 years of of Christianity under your belt and then begin to disciple. It's a command for everyone along the spectrum, new saint to oldest saint, to be discipling others and pointing them to Christ because you've been given a grace gift from the moment your heart was changed and you were made a believer in Christ. You were equipped for ministry from that point forward. Find people that you can minister to within the body of Christ and without the body of Christ and minister to them so that the church can be healthy. If you love Union Baptist Church, you won't cloister yourself away in privacy because you can't get well, get along well with others. You will embrace the, the fact that, that, that we, you've been given a call and a command to serve within the local church and you will begin to do that. What you do depends on your gifting and your experience though. If you're not gifted, don't try to do it. If you have no experience with it, maybe go along with somebody that does. We're not asking you to to reinvent the wheel or to do something that you can't really do. We're asking you, with the help of others, to find out what's naturally a strength for me. How can I use that to serve my local church? And we begin to do that. So in closing application here, I want to just point some things out. Studies have shown that on average, we only retain about 10% of what we hear. So you're only going to remember about 10% of what I've said this morning. But we can retain up to 65% of what we hear and see and participate in. That's just, that's, that's kind of a known thing when, through study. So discipleship is the God-ordained solution to our problem. If all we're doing is standing up here on Sundays and speaking to you, you're going to take 10% of that away. And that's not enough. But that's not what God's designed either. Through discipleship, he's created a program that allows you to participate in it, to see it done, and to hear it proclaimed, and then you'll retain at least 65% of what you've you've, uh, gone through. So discipleship is God's way of helping you get along better in your faith than just simply listening to me preach. I love to do it, but I understand you're not going to grow that much just listening to me or Andrew preach. But that's why in our preaching, I hope the 10% that you listen to is the get plugged in part. Because God, in God's economy, in in Christ's kingdom, that's what He expects. And God has a solution to the problem that we face. It's not that that preachers can't preach well enough. It's that we don't practice well enough. We're not participating well enough is is part of the problem. So as disciples, our shared experiences provide opportunities to practice the things we learn together. All right? discipleship then is god's plan to maximize our experience with him and increase our love and joy so maybe you're asking well what should i do in response to these things and here it is here's the here's the application here's the takeaway first of all i want each of you to acknowledge that neither you nor i are living up to jesus expectation to make disciples if we're honest this morning we're just simply not doing it well And and that's part of this owning ourselves. I'm not proud of it, but I'm willing to admit it. I'm I'm willing to own it in a room full of people. But we noted before that discipleship is a response to the authority of Christ. And R.C. Sproul once said, discipleship, quote, requires submitting fully to the authority of Christ, the one whose lordship goes beyond the classroom. It's a lifelong experience of learning the mind of Christ, following the will of Christ, and submitting ourselves in complete obedience to His lordship, end quote. So are you doing that? That's, that's application point number one. Jay Bauman describes discipleship this way. He says true discipleship is about embracing Christ through sanctification. And this happens in part through sharing our lives with each other. So will you commit to include the Word of God, prayer, and counsel in your everyday encounters with one another? That's, that's what we need to be doing. That's what Christ has called us to. And so I'm asking you to commit to including the Bible, including prayer, including counsel with other people in your strive to put that into your everyday life in order to form a community where the expectation is that we're discipling others and being discipled ourselves. So I recommend that we begin measuring our health here at Union Baptist Church or personally with questions like this. How am I doing as a disciple? Am I becoming more like Christ? Is Union Baptist Church making disciples and are they becoming more like Christ? Do our ministries really facilitate discipleship? How can I help make Union Baptist Church more effective at discipleship? These are things that I think we need to wrestle with. Let me ask you for another commitment though. Will you commit today with with the help of God to strengthen discipleship at Union Baptist Church? And here's some ways that you can do that. Attend Sunday school. Attend Sunday morning worship. Attend community groups. Attend Wednesday night services. Attend the Bible studies that we put on throughout the life of our church. That's where discipleship readily takes place. That's one place to start it. It takes place on the phone after hours too in and, and lots of other places, but it takes place in those arenas. And we can't divorce ourselves from those things when we've got the, the means and the opportunity to be here and expect for discipleship to magically happen. It won't. And we, won't, we can't disciple well in those moments on the phone if we haven't been here to be a part of the process because discipleship requires the local church. Will you commit to to parenting as a means of discipleship? This is the discipling others aspect. Your kids are, ought to be disciples of the Christian faith within your home. So will you as a parent commit to be a discipler of your children? Will you commit to uh, implementing family devotions if you haven't done that? Will you commit to implementing a Bible reading plan for yourself and for your children? Will you commit to scheduling daily prayer time or visiting church members or giving more generously to support the work that the church does do as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Will you commit this morning to creating a culture at Union Baptist Church where every decision, whether formal or informal, is explored through the explicit reference to God's Word? Where we ask and re-ask, what's God's Word teach about these issues? Will you commit to doing that? If you're here today and you're unsure if you possess eternal life, I would ask you to commit yourself into the hands of King Jesus. Maybe you're listening and you've been dead in your sins up to this point and and the Spirit of God is moving in your life. Well, you can't do any of these other things until you commit yourself into the hands of King Jesus this morning. So I would call you and invite you to do that. And I pray that as a result of God's grace, we will all commit to exercise the grace gifts we've been given in order to care and be cared for, to love and be loved, to forgive and be forgiven, to rebuke and be rebuked, to encourage and be encouraged, all of which are essential to the task of becoming a disciple of the risen Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, in light of Your Word, my simple prayer, God, is that You would do whatever it takes to make us disciples and disciplers of others. God, whatever You have to remove from our hearts and our lives, God, no matter how painful that process is, God, no matter what change that means or requires of us, I pray, O oh God, that you would begin a process of weeding out those things, those thoughts, those habits, those, uh, all the, the excuses that we have within our hearts that, that would tell us that, that we can't do the commitments that we just talked about. God, remove those things. And I don't expect that it will be all done today, but I pray that the process will begin, that you would work effectively through this word to bring conviction, to put us on the path that we ought to be on for your glory and for the health of this church, God. That's what we desire. And I pray that you would do this, O God, for King Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.